Well, good morning, First Family. What a blessing to be in the house of the Lord this special weekend. Did you get outside for the eclipse yesterday? Wasn't that crazy? So I, the most interesting thing to me was a friend of mine who has a bunch of chickens. Here's what he sent me a picture of. He sent me a picture of all of them standing stock still as if they were frozen in advance of being plucked, you understand. They were just standing so statuesque as if they knew something was really out of the ordinary. And wasn't it though? I had a conversation with some people that I met uh, that we were at a, a robotics meet at Midland College and I saw some people with some telescopes and some cameras off to one side and um, I thought I need to meet these people. So I walked over to visit with them and found out that they were from Arkansas and Missouri and from Tennessee. They had come to Midland for the eclipse. Isn't that interesting? So they're eclipse chasers. They've been all over the world watching these eclipses. And here, here's the thing that, that one of them said to me. He's an entomologist, not a theologian. He said, Darren, what's amazing to me is how God fashioned and created his ordered world that the, the moon would perfectly cover the sun for this moment in time and only do it when he prescribes it to be so. Almost as if, get ready for this, God had a plan. And he's putting it all together. Today we rejoice that indeed he does have a plan. And that we may not understand the seasons of that plan, but we can always be sure of his plan. I want us to start this morning with a time of prayer for our brothers and sisters in Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and throughout the Middle East. For peace for the, the, the city of Jerusalem and for that land. For justice to be done and for us to know the difference between the two. If you're in agreement with that, would you just catch hands with somebody close to you? And let's join together as we pray. Today, Lord, we come to you, the God who created all that is. When I was watching that eclipse yesterday, Lord, I was just so impressed with how you work things out. Nothing catches you by surprise. It might have caught those chickens off guard, but it didn't catch you. Today, Lord Jesus, we bring to you our prayer for the Middle East. We pray, Lord, in accordance with Psalm 122, for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray today, Father God, for justice to be done. We pray for discernment for President Biden and for all those who are in leadership. We pray, God, that you would give wisdom to those that are on the ground, the military forces. I pray, Father God, that you would protect the vulnerable and punish the guilty. We believe that you can do both, God, and so we trust that you will. Today, in agreement, Lord Jesus, we come to you with this prayer, knowing that you hear us. And today, Lord, with confidence, we say thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, and so we choose to do that very thing. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're talking about the God of righteousness, Jehovah Kassidnu. This is a great word for scrabble, all right? Just in case you wind up with an odd assortment of letters and you're not quite sure what to do with it, 
you can just throw some down and say it's a Hebrew name, and you'll probably be right. This morning, though, this is not a random assortment of letters. It is a description that God provides to us of who he is. He describes himself as the Lord who is our righteousness. Now, let's jump right in and recognize that Jeremiah in chapter 23 is setting two groups in opposition to each other, the righteous versus the unrighteous. Now, while we've read, and my friend Doug did so well, we've read that God is our righteousness, the chapter doesn't begin that way. It begins with something else. Hold on to that as we talk about what does Kisidnu mean. This is a key part, and you don't want to miss it. It means straight. It means narrow. Thus, any deviation from the path that God has set us on or that, that God himself is walking on means to steal from him or to take away from his glory. Thus, when Jeremiah hears the word of the Lord, he realizes that there's a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. God himself is the righteous, The leaders described in verses 1 and 2 are the unrighteous. Let's be clear, friends. Even in Jeremiah's day, sometime 5th, 6th century B.C., he recognized not all leaders are righteous. Not all leaders are righteous. Earthly kings, earthly leaders are broken, many times driven by their own greed. That's not universally so, but it's more than not. They want what they can gain and hold. Their greed causes them to fall into traps, sometimes set by Satan himself. These traps are set with avarice, bitterness, rage, revenge, cruelty. Their selfishness knows no bounds, and it is a reminder of what Romans 3.10 says. There is none righteous, no, not one. This is the cruel reality that we face when we come up against our own lack of righteousness. You see, the greatest need we have is righteousness, but it's also the furthest thing out of our reach. Jeremiah looked at God and realized God, in his mercy, kindness, and righteousness, granted us a future. We'll talk about that in Jeremiah 29. But before you get there, you have to reckon with the fact that we need God to be that righteousness because we ourselves are not. Our greatest need is righteousness, and yet it is the furthest thing from us. You know, not so long ago, I was at my dad's house near Fort Worth, and being at home, the house that I grew up in, I felt free to go to the refrigerator and help myself. Some of you have children like that, don't you? And so. I went to the refrigerator and I saw a bottle that looked like it had water in it. Nice cold drink on a warm day. I got the bottle out and as soon as I opened it, I realized something. This was not water. Now, I wanted water, but that wasn't what was in that particular jar. It was vinegar. That's how I felt about it. My dad was in the kitchen as well, and he said, what's the matter with you, when he saw the look on my face? And I said, this is not water. And he said, no, it's better for you, it's vinegar. He took it out of my hand and turned it up and drank some. If that makes your throat tight, 
welcome to my world, all right? I said, have you lost your mind? This can't be good for you, Dad. And he said, I'll be 87 in November. How you doing? <laughs> Touche. I understand your point, Dad. And yet, I think I'll stick with my Dr. Pepper, all right? So the reality is that we might think it's water, and somebody might tell us it's water, but the reality is it isn't always what it looks like. We have a lot of people who will tell us how to find righteousness, but there's only one place, and it's in the presence of God himself. That brings me to the next thing I want to talk about, relationship, righteousness by religion versus righteousness by relationship. These are two very different things. In Jeremiah 23, he puts them in opposition to one another. The kings at the beginning of the chapter, they are unrighteous. They've sold themselves down the river to sin and brokenness and wickedness. They've put themselves out. On the other hand, God is righteous. It is his nature to be righteous. It is who he is. He can't deny himself. Righteousness flows from his being. And here's where it gets amazing for us. He has granted us righteousness through Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I want to read that to you. This is what the word of the Lord said. For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become, get this, the righteousness of God. The whole purpose of Jesus' coming was to make us righteous through him. We couldn't get there on our own, but God knows we're going to try. There's a lot of people that seek righteousness by religion. Let's talk about this for a minute because maybe it will sound familiar and maybe it will cause you to say, I'm trapped in that. Righteousness by religion is guided by rules, comparison. They tell you what's in and what's out. They tell you who is to be compared to. It is a race always to be better than somebody else. It's kind of like the old story I heard about two guys camping out in the woods and worried about bears and one says, I don't have to be fast, I just have to be faster than you in running away from the bear. This is the problem with rules and comparison. As long as I don't color outside the lines, as long as I find somebody else worse than me, I'm good. There's another part to it. It's tradition and ritual driven. I do this because it makes me feel better, or because by doing this tradition, these rituals, I find righteousness. Friends, I want to warn you against that. You will never find righteousness through human means. It simply isn't available. If it was, why would Jesus have needed to come in the first place? If we could lift ourselves up, then why would Jesus have bothered to come? We can't. Here's a third thing about righteousness by religion. It's justice-driven and me-centric. Motivated by justice, as I understand it, it's up to me to protect my righteousness. So I have to measure up to certain standards. 
In Hinduism, it's the Bhagavad Gita. For Buddhism, it's the Four Noble Truths. For the Muslim, it's the Quran and its five pillars. All of these have one thing in common. It's up to me to find my own righteousness. We see this in other places besides just religions. In 1992, there was a armed robber arrested. His name is Dennis Lee Curtis. When they arrested him, they found in his wallet a list of rules for his robberies. I'll just share a couple of them with you. I will not take cash or food stamps. Oh, I beg your pardon. I will only take cash and food stamps, no checks. I'll rob only at night. I will, uh, will not wear a mask. I won't rob 7-Elevens. If I get chased by cops, I'll get away. If chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. I will rob only seven months out of the year. Not sure how he came to that other than he wanted a five-month vacation. I will enjoy robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. While we might applaud that he has some scruples, we might decry some of them and say this list of righteous living won't get you where you really want to go. Now, that's righteousness by ritual, by religion. Let's flip that because that's not what Jesus came to bring us. He came to bring us righteousness by relationship. Read it again in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For your sake Christ came and was made sin for you. He did not do that so that you could gin up a list of rules. He did that so that you might understand a relationship that is guided by righteousness. Righteousness by relationship is guided by God's grace. Since God's grace has been granted to me through his righteousness, not my own, I don't have to live up to some certain standard. I, instead, I live in the freedom that Christ has given me. Can I tell you today, my friends, this is liberating. It's freeing. It causes us to say, hey, it's not up to me. I don't have to punish myself for my failures. Christ already paid the debt for me. I can't tell you how many friends I've had over the years who have said, God can't love me because of what I've done or where I've been or who I've been. Can I tell you today, if that's you, if that's what you would say about yourself, if that's how you feel about yourself, then I, I want you to do something for me. I want you to look again at 2 Corinthians 5.21 and recognize that that happened long before you were born and yet Christ came for you. Why is that so? Well, that brings us to the second thing. Righteousness by relationship is covenant-driven. It's driven by the promise God made to you. And what is that promise? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. By faith you shall receive me. In faith you shall walk with me. Through faith you shall live. This is covenant living. It's covenant-driven. It means that we are motivated. We are moved by the covenant that God has made with us. It is his covenant with us, not us with him. See, if it's our covenant, then we're going to look for loopholes, places we can slide through. That's not the way that God has arranged this. It's his covenant, founded and forged on 
who he is, on his character. Which brings me to that last thing. It's mercy-driven and Christ-centric. Be clear, friends. I deserve punishment. You deserve punishment. I deserve wrath. You deserve wrath. But because of Christ, we get not what we deserve, but because of Christ, we get what he offers. A friend of mine who has a, a really twisted sense of humor got a box of donuts. And on one particular box of company, one particular company of donuts, they have on the box that says, you deserve a donut. And who doesn't? God bless you today with that. He scratched out a donut and wrote wrath over it. You deserve wrath. Thank God that Jesus took it for you. Mercy caused him to do that so that you might have the righteousness described in Jeremiah 23. Let's wrap up with this. There's hope for me because the Lord is my righteousness. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 reads like this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Recognition is this. My best power isn't enough to make me righteous. No matter how hard I try, no matter how good I think I'm doing, no matter how strong my morals or how high my motives are, my best power cannot raise me up to righteousness. It's a little like Plato. Plato, you remember Plato? Some of you that have children in your home or maybe you work in our preschool department, you remember Plato. It's an amazing, unbelievably fun stuff that you can use your imagination and creativity to make into anything you want. And here's the beautiful thing about it. As you're shaping that Plato, no one can tell you that you're doing it wrong. That's my favorite part. No one can tell me that I'm doing it wrong. Here's my other favorite part. If I don't like what I've made, I can start over. And I'd be just as right because it's my Play-Doh, not yours. In much the same way, the potter, the potter, he has us as the clay in his hands. He shapes us according to his will and fashions us, forms us, makes us because of who he is. Jeremiah 18 talks about the potter at the wheel. If he decides it's not up to snuff, he takes it away and starts over. Can I tell you today, just like the clay can't make itself into anything, neither can we. We need the potter to come along and shape us, fashion us, form us into the image he wants us to have. And God's will is for me to find his righteousness in Christ. In just a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, or at least provide you that opportunity. You don't have to, but when we do it, here's what you'll remember, I hope. The whole purpose of Christ's coming 
was to make me righteous, to bring me into right relationship with God, to take me from where I was to where he wants me to be. He came for the purpose of forming me to be righteous. Now, I didn't deserve that. I didn't do anything to earn that favor. I, I didn't do anything that would cause God to say, this is amazing guy, I need him. But it's as if we have been granted a special gift. It's as if this robe has been brought out of the closet. And on that robe, it says, the Lord is our righteousness. And Christ, with grace and mercy, comes to us and he places that robe on our shoulders. And in doing so, he makes us righteous too. I want to tell you today, friends, that's exactly what Christ has done for you. He came to wrap you in his robe. Well, Darren, I, I, I don't deserve that. No, you don't. Aren't you grateful that it's not about what you do deserve, but about what Christ came to give you? I wonder today if you've understood the Lord is our righteousness. You see, my prayer all week has been that this would awaken in you a realization that you don't have to figure this out all on your own. That your righteousness is bought and paid for. All you have to do is receive it and live in the joy that it brings. I wonder if you're still trying to do it on your own. Well, I want to tell you, friends, you can't get there from here. And I want to warn you that the longer you try, the harder it is to come back to the robe of righteousness Christ stands ready to give you. Maybe you've never let Christ put that robe on you. Well, today's a good day to do exactly that. In just a minute, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And when we do, the Word of God says, don't do it half-heartedly. We're going to give you an invitation time. No, not to come down here. Not today, anyway. But to respond to the Spirit of God right where you are. I'm going to give you a chance in the silence to say whatever it is that you would say to the Lord. Here's what you might start with. God, I'm sorry for what I've done and for trying to live in the righteousness that you alone can give me. You, Lord, are our righteousness. We can't do it on our own. I'm sorry for trying. You might also need to say, God, forgive me for the sin of whatever it is that you need to repent from. You might also say, God, cleanse me and make me whole yet again, not because I deserve it, but because of your mercy. Maybe you need to seek the Lord in a whole new way, and like Hannah at the start of this service, you need to be baptized. Then after this service, I want you to come out and find me in the Welcome Center. I'll be right out here. This is the day God has given you to respond to who he is, the Lord who is your righteousness. Let's pray together.
Jesus, we gather together as your people to proclaim your goodness, to declare our gratitude to you, and to rejoice, Lord Jesus, that your righteousness is all we need, and that you, Jesus, have died to give us that very thing. Forgive us for trying to find other remedies. My prayer today, Jesus, is that you, because of your mercy, would show your power in this place, in each life here. Your word tells us, Lord, that you are our righteousness. Forgive us for trying to figure it out on our own. Your word tells us that we shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily, without repentance, without confession. So today, Lord Jesus, in this moment, we choose to confess our sin to you. Forgive us for our anger, our bitterness, our rage, our lust. Forgive us, Lord, for believing that we are owed something other than your wrath, and yet you've given us grace over and over. I pray, Lord, that you would meet each of us in the stillness of our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us there. So as we celebrate today, Lord, remind us that we look back back to see the cross where you paid the price for our sin. We look around us at all the people that are celebrating with us today and we look forward. Forward, Lord Jesus, to that day that you will return and take us all home to be with you for eternity where we'll gather around the, the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb and rejoice forevermore. Guide us in this time, Lord Jesus, and thank you for your goodness. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.